Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mike Hyatt, Associate Veterinarian at the Wildlife Conservation Society's New York Aquarium. On this episode, we're going to be highlighting some of the amazing field work Dr. Hyatt does with sharks, as well as discuss how you can follow his work through a special phone app. So let's jump right in. Hi, Dr. Hyatt. Thank you so much for being here on Aquadox. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm super excited to talk with you more about some of your clinical cases and research and your love for sharks. But before we get there, I was hoping you could share with our listeners a story that really helped shape where you are today. Yeah, actually, this goes back to my undergrad days. I was at University of Miami. I've always been interested in marine biology, and so I went there for that. But what type of work I wanted to be involved with, I wasn't sure. I knew that I I loved all different aspects of marine life, but I was really interested in corals and coral ecology. So I was kind of going along through my college career thinking I was going to do coral reef ecology, get a PhD, but I was also heavily involved with the Marine Mammal Stranding Network. So that's where it's like some of my early mentors, like Greg Bossard and Ruth Ewing at National Marine Fisheries. And it was actually one of our stranded animals didn't make it. And so we were performing a necropsy and Ruth Ewing is the pathologist with National Marine Fisheries that we've worked with a lot. I think it was a pygmy sperm whale. So we had wrapped up the necropsy. There was a lot of other classmates there and others. And then when it was time to clean up, everyone just vanished. So it's just Ruth and I were the only ones there to clean up this whole necropsy and turn into this whole conversation of, so what do you want to do with your career? And I always had in the back of my mind that working with stranded marine mammals, seeing the medical side of things. I knew it was like, it's almost impossible to get into veterinary medicine, especially in aquatic medicine or marine mammals. So I just didn't really consider it as an option. And then Dr. Ewing was just like, well, if that's something you really want to do, go for it. And so many people have said that you can't do it. And she was the one that told me that don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. If that's what you want to do, then go for it. And this was now in my third year of college. And so based on that, I was like, you know what? I think I might actually pursue that and try to pursue vet school. So my senior year of college, I changed my curriculum to pre-vet. In addition to finishing up the marine biology, then once I graduated from college. I then moved up to Gainesville because I wanted to go to University of Florida because of their aquatic medicine program and started getting experience as a vet tech and then got into the school eventually. And I just continued pursuing aquatic medicine. But yeah, it was that conversation that really changed everything. That's amazing. And I feel like that pops up on this podcast all the time where we think we're going to go one direction and someone pulled you aside and said, you can do this if you want it you can do it. And I feel like that's so helpful for all of us who have an interest somewhere in this field. So once you're in vet school, you were interested in marine mammals. So did you do a lot of marine mammal stuff before you shifted into broad spectrum aquarium work? Or what did that look like for you? Well, initially, since I was involved with so many necropsy, I was thinking I could be a aquatic pathologist. And at the time, I knew so little. I mean, like marine mammal was all I had. And then as you work and learn from others and just see what the field is actually about. I was like, okay, yeah, it's much more broad. And then you start thinking more aquatic medicine and then you don't keep yourself off to the side. And then it got to the point where I was telling people, 
that once I was into the field that, yeah, I worked on everything from jellyfish to balloons. I love that. Jellyfish to belugas. So then since a lot of your research today focuses on sharks, how did you specifically get into that aspect of the field? That goes back to when I was doing my combined internship with Florida Aquarium and University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Lab. Ilsa Berzins was still at the Florida Aquarium at that time, and she gave me the opportunity to take on a research project. She was like, hey, would you be interested in going down to the 10,000 islands and working with a shark researcher down there and collecting blood samples and looking at blood gas analysis for capture and handling stress? Something that we were interested in looking at, but we haven't really been able to do it. So I was like, yeah. It's like, I didn't know exactly how much I love sharks until I started working with them more. But I'm like, wait, you want me to go down to the 10,000 islands, hang out fishing for sharks? And like, sure, I'll do that. And then we would just kind of take turns and we would go down for three nights a month. This project built and built and we ended up doing it for three years. Oh, wow. And so we would catch up juvenile bull, bonnethead, and lemon sharks, tag them, and then I'll get a blood sample right when we caught them, and then right before release, and be able to look at their secondary stress response with like pH and lactate. And that led to several different publications looking at behavioral release condition, how that might relate to their blood gas analyses. It's like, is it accurate enough just on how you see them? Is it matching up with what you see in the blood? And then also looking to see how the environment impacts their stress response. And so for our listeners who might not be as familiar with blood gas analysis, you mentioned pH and lactate. What are some of the other parameters that you're looking at and what would indicate that an animal is under stress? Yeah, so some of the other values, PCO2, PO2, so looking at the oxygen CO2 levels. You have to be careful when looking at those in the blood because a shark's blood sample from ventral coccygeal vein, the artery is really close as well, so you can actually get anywhere from a pure venous sample to pretty highly mixed sample. And so those values may not be the most accurate. So we still look at those for trends, look at bicarbonate levels for their buffering capacity, but the pH, that doesn't really change based on whether it's venous or arterial, nor does lactate. So one of the big changes you see in sharks with stress response, they're pretty sensitive to developing lactic acidosis. So you'll see a drop in pH and an increase in lactate. And one of the big reasons we're trying to look at this is because just handling sharks also in managed care when we do our normal workups with them, we want to know different species, how well they can tolerate the handling and also just know what baseline levels should look like and then what are considered dangerous levels, things we should be aware of. So if we see pH getting too low or lactate getting too high, it's like we need to intervene or release the animal before we cause too much harm from our handling. And if an animal's lactate does get really high, indicating that there is a stress response, how long does that typically take for those levels to go back down to normal parameters? It really depends on the species, but for some, it can take greater than 24 hours for them to come back down to a normal baseline based on what other researchers have found in species. And so were you finding that a lot of those animals that you were doing the capture release for did have elevated stress response? We used a gill net and long lines. So those that would get more entangled in the gill net, that would take longer for us to get them out and get sampled. They would have what we call a mixed metabolic and respiratory acidosis because if they got entangled in the gill net, then they couldn't 
ventilate as well, especially for those that would be like a ram ventilator to continually swim like the bonnet heads. Just meaning they weren't getting enough oxygen flow in. Yeah, they don't get enough water flow over their gills. They're entangled in the gill net, then yeah, they can't either pump to get the water over their gills or continually swim to get the water over their gills to oxygenate their tissues. But then those on the long line where we can immediately get to them, we could sample them right away and they're able to continually swim, then we did not see nearly as high of a stress response. And there's a lot of research out there by a lot of different groups that have worked on capturing handling stress and looking at post-release mortality. And a lot of this focus on sharks that would be caught by recreational fishermen to try to minimize the fight times and getting them in to be released as quickly as possible and they would have the best chance of survival. Well, that's a cool project. So that got you into sharks. And now you've had a wonderful career where you've been able to do quite a variety of things. So do you have another example of some field work that you've been able to do that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so in the past six years, I've been involved with OSEARCH. They're a nonprofit research group that is a massive collaborative effort that gives unprecedented access to researchers, veterinarians, to white sharks and other big shark species, such as tiger sharks. And as one of the veterinarians, you know, do health assessments on white sharks and being involved with multiple research projects. So that's been amazing. Harley Newton is leading the veterinary team. And so we're looking at developing reference intervals for baseline for what a healthy white shark looks like in the North Atlantic. It was one of the least studied white shark populations. And so it is now probably the most studied after the six, seven years that OSEARCH has been working with this population. That sounds incredible. I'm super interested in hearing more about what health assessments look like for white sharks because I've been on health assessments for dolphins and you're in the water and you're putting a big net around and bring them up onto the boat. And I feel like that process might look a little bit different when you have a white shark in the water. Parts of what we do with OSEARCH is very similar to dolphin health assessments. I've taken part in the HERA projects in the past. Then there's also portions of it that are completely different. So with OSEARCH, their ship is designed with this lift that goes into the water and through capture methods like hand line fishing, they're then able to use the fishing boat to guide the shark to swim over the platform. So the shark hasn't really fought much at all and they're almost like training the shark to swim in the direction they want to. And then as soon as it's over, they're able to raise the platform up out of the water, which will bring the shark out of the water. So now the shark isn't able to swim and we have a hose of fresh flowing seawater that we're able to stick in the shark's mouth so it can continually breathe while it's out of the water. We put a towel over its eyes, which helped calm it. And you wouldn't think this would happen, but when you bring the shark out of the water, they completely relax. And so we've been looking at the stress response while they're on the lift compared to when sharks are up in the water, but we're not seeing them any more stressed, whether they're in the water or not. And then the science team that's on there, usually probably like six of us. And it's like a NASCAR pit crew. And we all get onto the platform. We all have different tasks to do. So usually there's one, maybe two veterinarians involved. The others are different researchers. 
and students collecting samples who are getting blood, doing ultrasound exams, physical exam, collecting swabs all over the body and mouth for microbiome analysis, thin clips for genetics, muscle biopsies for a range of studies, forming brief surgery to place a acoustic tag into the salomon cavity. We try to get this all done within 15 minutes. And then also we roll the shark and then place satellite tag or a spot tag on the dorsal fin. And for those that are familiar with O-Search and their app that you can download where you can follow all of the sharks that we've tagged, it's that satellite tag on their dorsal fin that allows everyone to follow them on their migratory path over the years. That's super cool. And we'll definitely add the link to that app in our episode notes. So for people listening who want to go see what sharks you've been tagging recently, they can go figure that out. That's amazing. So this acoustic tag, you're putting it in the salomic cavity. Is that something that stays there long term or is the goal for that to fall out over time? Nope, that is in for the life of the shark. The tag will send out an acoustic ping about every minute to 90 seconds. And those tags will last 10 years of battery life. So for any researchers that have acoustic arrays, that have receivers in certain areas, if a shark swims close enough, then their receiver will pick up that ping that's produced by the tag in the shark. So this is a very common tracking modality that researchers use to look at more fine scale in the local site fidelity. It's going to be within certain bays or along coastlines. And then there's like a whole system uh, where all researchers can work together, communicate that, can share data. So if they pick up certain sharks on their acoustic arrays, they can let others know. Before we leave health assessments, I'm curious if there's anything that has really surprised you about that process. I don't know if surprise is the best word, but for me, it's just seeing the collaboration. Collaboration is key. No one can do any of this by themselves. You need to rely on others, and so you need to rely on great teams. Like all the research I've been involved with, it's always with teams, whether it's within the Florida Aquarium in Rookery Bay, or whether it's O-Search with countless institutions. And then with the New York Seascape program, we're collaborating not only amongst ourselves, but with Stony Brook University and regional researchers. Sand tiger sharks is one of the main species we work with doing health assessments, and they're highly migratory as well. So during the winter, they're down in the Carolinas, down in Georgia. So there's researchers in the Carolinas working with them. So it's like we're looking at the bigger picture of their health, not only in our region, but in other regions and how that can compare between those regions and seasons as they migrate through. So it's like working with these different groups and we can all learn from each other and try to create this big picture of the health of the sand tiger. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I feel like that's a lot of where we're going in this field right now and where I'm very excited. We're doing so many really interesting projects that are focused on the wild animals and we're able to use our animals in managed care to maybe do more focal studies and figure out how things work. And then we apply it to these wild counterparts and being able to look at, you know, what is the overall population health of the sand tiger shark, of a white shark, of an octopus, of a beluga, whatever it is. It's really exciting what we're up to right now. And so before I let you go, I know you're also involved in the STAR program. And so I was hoping you could tell us A, what that is, and B, a little bit more about your involvement with it. So the STAR program is this new 
collaborative effort between different aquariums around the U.S., along with aquariums in Australia, Indonesia, I think a couple other places. This is involving the zebra shark, which populations have become decimated in Indonesia due to overfishing. And even though they've tried to protect the species, try to have marine protected areas, other shark species have rebounded, but the zebra shark population has not. And we're not sure why. And so the STAR program, which stands for Stegosoma tigrinum Augmentation Recovery Program. And so the scientific name of zebra shark is Stegosoma tigrinum. What we're trying to do is actually utilize eggs that are produced in aquariums, normal breeding from different zebra shark pairs and that we know their genetics or know that they're a good breeding stock. Take those eggs, ship them over to two different hatcheries in Indonesia. The main one right now is in Rajambat and there's another one being built and then raise up those eggs, hatch them out. And then from that hatchery, release juvenile zebra sharks into these marine protected areas and see if we can bolster the population this way. It's a similar model that's done with other species like hellbenders, other reptiles. So this is the first of its kind to attempt this with sharks. It's something that I think is an amazing project and I'm on the veterinary working group. So we're working to advise on just building this program, veterinary protocols, what's going to be in the best interest of the health of the animals from the point that they are fertile eggs all the way to the hatchlings and the juveniles. And then hopefully with research teams to, once we release them, be able to track them and see how they're utilizing the lagoons or the, the coral reefs that they're on to see are there certain areas where they're going. If they leave, where are they going? That might lead to the ways to better protect the species. And so how long has this been going? And have you seen a lot of eggs grow up and turn into adults that are leaving that protected area? This just started up. It's been in the development stages, I think, for the past couple of years. So we just shipped out the first batch of eggs recently. So we're in the very early stages of it. So hopefully we'll be able to have progress reports in the future. And hopefully things will be successful. But yeah, there's different husbandry groups. And hopefully the veterinary group will be going out soon in the next year or so to visit the site and help train others out there. So uh, I'm excited to see where this project's going to go and if this is going to be a success for the population. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds like a great program and I mean, it has been successful with other species. So hopefully that'll go really well and we'll have great reports to be able to come back from you. Yeah. Like, I'm curious, you have eggs from the various facilities here that you're sending out. Is it a situation where you're sending 100 eggs and maybe one of them is going to be viable and then potentially able to hatch and stuff? Or is it more of a, you're only sending those that are already at the stage where they can then move forward? Yeah, they're ones that we've already determined are viable okay. and already started development. And so they're going to have the best chance. And so since it's still in the early stages, this hasn't been done before going from the U.S. or from Australia and others into Indonesia. I mean, trying to figure out the logistics of it and shipping times, like how long it takes to transport them. And we're going to learn a lot along the way. We may learn certain methods don't work as well as others. So it's going to be a big learning process.
Yeah, I mean, that was my next thought. Do they have to have certain requirements for what they need to be contained in? And if the temperature changes or does the elevation of the airplane affect stuff, which I'm sure you'll be learning over the course of the year. Temperature, we try to keep it within a minimum change. I don't know if altitude will impact them that much. So many other aquatic animals are shipped by freight and FedEx, and they don't seem to be impacted. So we're hoping that the eggs would be impacted either. That's fair. I just, it always baffles me that we send things across the world in airplanes. But it does happen all the time, and it's quite successful. It's just still very surprising. Well, that sounds like a really cool project and an amazing opportunity that you get to be a part of this and being able to potentially help repopulate a species. It's very, very exciting. We'll definitely have to follow up and, and see how things are going. Excellent. Again, such a cool project that you get to work on and you're able to potentially help save an endangered species. So very, very cool. Before I let you go, do you have any advice for our student listeners? Yeah, so for those that are interested in aquatic medicine or zoo and aquatic medicine, yes, this is a very competitive field. It is very difficult to get into. But as I said earlier, don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. And if I could get into it, I think anyone who really wanted to put in the effort, the sacrifices, they can do it as well. Get as much experience as you can as early as possible. Get to know people in the field. That's going to get your foot in the door. And that's the best way to get around in this field is because other people talk. And as soon as you make an impression on different clinicians, researchers, that's going to get you far. And when I got first in the field, there was only like two aquatic medicine residencies, and I'm always asked, like, do I need to do a residency? Back then, I was told I didn't need to do a residency to get into the field. Now it's getting to the point where it's so competitive, where I really strongly urge people to pursue a residency, whether it's a zoo residency or aquatic residency or the the ones that are combined. It is a lot more sacrifice, but it's worth it in the long run. And then definitely pursue the different externships that are available. I mean, I don't want to be biased, but the one at the New York Aquarium is an excellent opportunity. So I highly recommend students look into applying to our externship program, give you a lot of aquatic medicine experience. Definitely look into that. And for that one, is that typically for fourth year clinical students or will you accept students who are younger? Just for those in their final clinical year, usually fourth year. I know some programs like University of Florida, they're doing their externships in between like their third and fourth year. Applications are open now through end of November for next year's cycle. So let's see those applications. Amazing. Well, so much good stuff today. I learned a lot about sharks and, you know, it's encouraging to just hear that If you want to do it and you want to be in this field, you can do it. So, Dr. Hyatt, thank you so much for being here on Aquadogs. Well, thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadogs. I'd like to thank Dr. Mike Hyatt for being on the show this week, our sponsors WAVMA and AAFE, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadogs news. And if you got an extra moment, please rate us five stars in Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.